On this episode of the New Action Podcast, we talk about police brutality in Nigeria and a youth-led movement called Hashtag NSARS. We want justice. Amnesty International has reported at least 12 people have died. Who killed those 12 people? It's this general attitude of corruption. And so to fix the issues that are happening at the police level, they need to fix the issues at the top level. Welcome to the New Action Podcast. I'm Alfred Bergeson, a member of the Prime Minister's Youth Council and the founder of Collective Action. And I'm Tristan Olaf, the co-founder and managing director of Nouvelle News, a youth-driven news and media platform amplifying stories that matter. We are young activists and we have conversations about topics, people, and events in the world today. Conversations that explore important stories and hopefully inspire action. If you enjoy our podcast, subscribe, give us a rating, and follow us on social media. So hashtag NSARS has been all over social media. We had celebrities like Beyonce, Rihanna, Burner Boy sharing NSARS, sending money to Nigeria. Tristan, you want to give us a little overview of what's currently happening there right now? NSARS is essentially an anti-police movement in Nigeria, specifically targeted towards this, basically what's called a special anti-robbery squad, which was a faction of the Nigerian police force. It's been established since 1992. And basically the premise for this group was a organization, a police organization to combat an increase in armed robbery in the country. Basically, the unfortunate reality of what seems to have happened is that this special anti-robbery squad, SARS, has been exceedingly overzealous. And clearly, it seems that when it was created, it did not have the right sort of accountability for the power that a, a unit like that could wield. And over the past decades, but even more recently, there has been this, this big uptick in basically the SARS officers targeting uh, a lot of young people, young people who in some instances are perceived to be showing some reflections of wealth, people with nice smartphones or laptops or cars. And these SARS officers will then approach, um, usually at gunpoint, these young Nigerians and arrest them and claim that they, the fact that they have these fancy gadgets is a, a reflection that they are actually committing crimes and that they've stolen to get these kinds of things. And basically what's happening is that it just becomes this massive bribery scheme. So these SARS officers use their power and threaten using violence these young people. They force them to either go to the ATM and withdraw money or they straight out abduct them and then have some way to contact their families and then try to extort their families for bribes. This is very serious. And it was said in 2016 that Amnesty International basically reported that the allegations against SARS were credible in this sense. And they would try to force confessions out of their victims, either through severe beatings, hanging, starvations, and threats of execution. So very serious stuff. But now this is something that's flared up even more recently with this hashtag NSARS protest, which I really first truly heard about when Alfred started speaking to me about it. What did it seem like on your end? When, what did you learn about the NSARS protest and how has that kind of developed over time? I have a very close friend here in Halifax. His name is Olu. And Olu moved to Canada, I think two years ago, to start his master's degree at a university in Halifax. And so Olu and I have been friends for the past little while and his family's still in Nigeria. And while he's here, every now and then we'll talk about how things are back home. 
And recently, Ulu sent me some social media posts about what's happening in Nigeria. And there was a point last week where Olu just said things are getting out of hand. And he came over to my place and we, we went for a walk and we talked about what was happening. And he just gave me insight to what he was hearing from his friends who were on the ground there. So it was very, it was quite an emotional sort of conversation about what's happening. Obviously it's, it hit very close to home for him because that is home and that's where his family is. So we just went for a walk and we talked about what was going on. We talked about what we could do. We talked about what potential solutions could be. And that led to us launching another collective action campaign, which was end police brutality in Nigeria, hashtag MSARS. It's quite disturbing. There are pictures and videos on social media of people in Nigeria being killed on social media. That's, yeah, it's very disturbing. Olu shared a story about how his sister was trying to get home, but she couldn't because she saw that there were some some people in front of their of her gate at her house. And she had to go somewhere else and call her dad for her dad to come pick her up because she didn't want to engage with these military or police people because at that time they were actually killing people. Olu Olu is someone who's been engaged with the UN. He's been to New York multiple times to different UN assemblies. Olu's dad works for the government of Nigeria. And so, yeah, we just brainstormed what we could do. And the collective action campaign was the, the first start. And we talked about, okay, who should we engage with? Who should we be making demands to about what's happening in Nigeria? Obviously, the president and the, the federal government in Nigeria was behind this. And so sending emails to them really wouldn't make that much of a difference. So we decided to target the UN, the United Nations, and the International Criminal Court. These are two bodies that have some level of power to intervene in Nigeria, either by launching investigations or imposing sanctions and criminal charges against individuals in Nigeria. And so we thought that these two organizations would be the, the ones we should be engaging with. And then I, I told Olu, this needs to get out to the world. The world needs to know about what's happening in Nigeria. And so he knows that we have a podcast and he suggested that we talked to someone in Nigeria, Ali Bob, a close friend of his who's in Nigeria right now, who's been on the ground protesting and dealing with the police. And so that's what led to, to us then uh, reaching out to Ali Bob and having a conversation we, we had with Ali Bob, which you will hear on this episode today. I think that one thing that's important before we hear from Ali Bob is just hearing the the sort of timeline of where this has been taking place. On October 8th in Nigeria, so earlier on this month, there was a first set of peaceful protests um, around police brutality, having basically this video being circulated online of a SARS operative uh, killing a man. And that sort of, again, reignited the sort of existing disappointment and, and fear and anger about SARS and police brutality. And I think, as we mentioned early on, online, online discussions in Nigeria and around the world really helped to propel this since uh, October 8th into million people strong demonstrations all around Nigeria in the north and the south. 
And the unfortunate reality of what sort of then transpired, and um, this is part of what we're going to hear from Ali Bob in a second, was that in these peaceful demonstrations against police brutality were unfortunately met, as so often is the case, with more police brutality. And there are reports of dozens of casualties, even though some members of the government at first denied. It is a very serious situation. And, uh, and this is why we, as Alfred mentioned, found it so important to hear directly from the source. So here's our conversation with Ali Bob. Hey, Ali Bob. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah brother. Okay, I have an update for you right now. Go for it. Okay, so my office is in a right now. Hoodlums are attacking the area where my office is. So that's why a lot of people were calling me earlier and the line was breaking to ask if I was safe. So currently there's an attack in Abuja right now by hoodlums just beside my office. So one thing that I heard, and I'm really sorry to hear about this, Ali, but one thing that I heard on the news was that there were these videos of what seemed to be like people who were dressed in regular clothing and were agitating the protesters and making it seem like they were violent and then being seen on camera, jumping into fancy vehicles and being driven away. And some people have said that these might have been yeah. government vehicles. Have you heard anything about this? Could you explain a little bit of this? And does yes. that maybe relate to what okay. you're seeing? Well so initially when we started protests, the government used the police to disperse us. I feel like they found that that couldn't work. On one occasion, we were supposed to protest in front of the Inspector General of Police Office. By the time we got there, we saw soldiers. So at that point, the government were out of options. So we can state categorically that these people got sponsored hoodlums to try and frame our protest to be violent. Because what happens is they came in government buses. So how can we say hoodlums, as they are trying to tag them, got into the federal capital territory, that's the capital of, of Nigeria, that's Abuja. They were able to get in here with, with government buses and they were able to cause that much chaos. And the police that, were, that was always around to disperse peaceful protesters were not there. So these are clear indications that the government is not coming out with their hands clean on issues, on these issues. And also, as I was going to say, is that we were able to apprehend one of the hoodlums because when they attacked us, we were quite a number. So we were able to apprehend one of them. And he told us that some lady in Abuja called them and told them that they have a work for, they have a job for them to do to come and disperse protesters, and they gave them 1,500 Naira each. 1,500 Naira each. And at the point where, I have the video of this, I could send it to you. At the point where we were able to apprehend this person, he said that even as at the point where they came to disrupt the protest, they had not even been paid. So you can see that these people are weaponizing the poverty in the land to cause chaos. Wow. And, and just to confirm from what you've seen, the protests were not violent. There were peaceful demonstrations. So we went to protest and we let people that had medical emergencies pass. We gave food to the policemen. So, so I have two more quick questions for you, and I'm sure Alfred will have some. But the first one is, so obviously you have been here on the ground. You see what's going on. You've taken videos. are incredible and also disturbing what you're saying about having been able to speak to one of these agitators. But my question for you is, 
what is it that you are hearing from the government? What are they saying about these protests? Like, how are they characterizing them? And is it the reality? The government is being clearly dishonest. It's not, they are not, they are not telling us the truth about it. Because, for example, I'll say Lagos State Governor said that what happened in Lekki, there was no casualty. That is a clear lie because we watched it. I watched it live on Instagram where people died. They are dead bodies. They have those people have families. Those people have names. They've come out to say, yes, we have people in the hospital. We have people that are personally hit. And for the government to come out and say there were no casualties, that's clearly dishonest. Let's even take, for example, in Abuja here, what has been happening. The government is saying they've met our demands. What demands have they met? What demands have they met, really? Because in Nigeria, survival is very difficult. And these SARS people, these SARS tactical units, let's say they are very notorious and they are rogue, they are rogue units. So almost everybody in Nigeria has a SARS official that they call when they're in trouble. Because it's only them that can save you for themselves. They can't, you can't even call any other person to save you from SARS. So I have a personal SARS contact a day after the IG announced the disbandment of SARS. I called him, and what he told me clearly was there is nothing that's happening to SARS, that they are still very much on ground, that they just told them to lay low for a bit and they will be back. And that is just me. A lot of other people had contact with, a lot of other people had contact with SARS who have told them that, oh, there's nothing that's happening. Okay, let's even agree that the government has disbanded SARS. That's not good enough. Who was in charge of SARS? Let's agree that SARS was failed. If there's a failed unit, we need somebody to be sacked. We need people to lose their jobs. We need people to be, to, to be held accountable because these people have killed people. We need people to be suspended. We need people to be jailed. We need people to face justice. None of this has happened. You get what I'm saying? So the government is being very dishonest, in my opinion, because you can't say you have met our demands when you have clearly not met our demands. As I yesterday in Lagos, SAS officials were still on the road. That's as I yesterday in Lagos. Can you see where we're saying that the dishonesty of the government is making matters worse? Because if the government can come out clean and tell us what is really happening and what's what they've done, we know that, okay, yes, what follows the announcement? We want justice. Yeah, and during this protest, at least Amnesty International has reported at least 12 people have died. Who killed those 12 people? But do, you, do you feel like the, that the general like, population is on your side? Like we see a lot of times, whether it's in like the US or Hong Kong, a lot of other places when the government is trying to cover things up or not make the reforms that the people are asking for, they try to divide the people. They try to, like you said, be dishonest, create different narratives. Do you feel like the majority of the people in Nigeria understand why people are protesting and are against the government on this issue? We, we have the support of the Nigerian population 100%. We have the support of the, the NSAS protesters have the support of the people 100%. I can tell you that scenes from the protest grounds, when pe- people that are in traffic, we met people that, we, that were, were inconvenienced. I have personal videos I can share. People that were inconvenient, people that were stuck in traffic telling us, I like what the people are doing, continue. Do you understand? There's a, there's a very high level of irresponsibility of the Nigerian government, which is making people sick and tired. So 
the the answers protests started as answers, but at this point, I think it is way beyond answers because Nigerians are tired. Nigerians are tired. It is now a fight against systemic oppression. It's not a fight. It's not because SARS was the catalyst, and SARS was oppressing a lot of Nigerians. So now, every Nigerian that has been oppressed in any way is using this opportunity to vent. And if you're looking at it logically, you can't blame them. These are people living in abject poverty. No food, no, on the protest grounds, people are there saying, oh, the government did not give us job. The government did not give us anything. We're jobless, we're coming to protest. And at the protest, we're making food available for protesters. So you imagine people coming to, people were coming to protest because they could eat at the protest grounds. That's how bad it was. Homeless people join protesters because they are homeless. They have found a family with protesters who stay there, who protest for morning to night, who sleep there, who eat there. That's the situation of things. Nigerians are in total solidarity with the movement. Nigerian government, should, rather than use tactics to cause stay and cause unrest in the polity, Nigerian government should meet just the demands of, the demands are not, they are not, they are not too serious. These demands are, I even feel like these are the, these demands are too basic. What are the demands that have been put forward? Can you share those with us? And if you think these demands are, are basic, what needs to happen next after these demands are met? Okay, can you, let me can share you share that with, with us? You. Let me, that a five point agenda that came out. And let me read the first point. Immediate release of all arrested protesters. That was the first one. To an extent, some have been released. I'll say the government have released some of them. The second point is justice for all deceased victims of police brutality and appropriate compensation for their families. They've not gotten justice, they've not gotten compensation. So the second point on the list has not been met at all. The third point is setting up an independent body to oversee investigation and prosecution of all reports of police misconduct within 10 days. Now, the government has set up some panels and all, but we feel like the government is gaslighting us because you don't need to set up committees and panels. We have government agencies for this. We have the National Human Rights Commission. The police force have their own disciplinary. You don't need to come and try and gaslight us and tell us you're setting up a panel for this, you're setting up. A... We, you have all these agencies. These are, these are full, fully funded government agencies that are supposed to address these issues. So when these issues come and tell us you're setting up another panel, and that panel will be paid with taxpayers' money. Don't you think that is the government trying to play smart? That's the third point. And that was within 10 days. And we've not really seen, I, I would say that this point, this third point has not been met. The fourth point is, in line with the new police act, psychological evaluation and retraining of all disbanded SARS officers before they can be redeployed. Yes, the government has claimed to, to train some of their officials, which is true. I can verify that some of them are undergoing training currently. I can verify that. I've spoken to a police officer that told me, yes, they're undergoing training. Some of them are undergoing training. But also another thing is how good is this training? How efficient is it? Let's agree that, yes, they, they are being trained. They are being retrained. But they've not gone for psychological evaluation, which I'm sure about. The right. fifth, are you with me? Yeah. The fifth point is increased police salary and welfare, which has not been met. Because we're not, we're also fighting for the police force. 
the police force is 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 very is underfunded. Even the funds that are allocated to them have largely misappropriated. So we're also saying that we need these people to be properly compensated and they are well, they should have good welfare package. So these are the five points. As, as much as this five point agenda do not speak for everybody, but this is a five point agenda that the majority of the protesters could agree with. And even at that, the government has not met it. Mm. And these are very these are very reasonable demands. They're very basic. Uh, yeah, they're and, they're, very and, they're basic, very, yeah. and they're very targeted here. And, and I think the important thing is you're not asking the government to find a huge amount of money. There's so many different things from corruption overhaul to social welfare, to all these kinds of things. You talk about the, the issues of homelessness that need to be dealt with. But I, I think it's important to see that the demands are still looking at the impact of SARS. But I think maybe something that for a lot of our audience here is in Canada that they could appreciate to understand a little bit more. You bring up this point of fair compensation for police officers. And I think for a lot of people, they might be confused in that there is a protest against police brutality. And one of the demands is for increased compensation. But I think that what people sometimes can't really fully understand here in Canada is just the level of corruption that goes on within the police force in African countries, and how that then leads them to to try and go to members of the public and try to extort bribes from them, which I think is part of this. So can you explain a little bit for our audience where this sort of aspect of police corruption fits into it? And so why it's so important to okay. properly uh, fund the police there. Okay, for example, there's the police academy, police academy, which trains like, it's like a proper school for police, for the police force. So they go there, it's like a university, they spend four to five years there and they come out with a degree and they graduate as senior officers. And while they are even at that training, why are they at this school? They're supposed to be paid salaries like stipends for undergoing the training for four or five years for as long as their course goes. I can tell you categorically that I know of somebody that finished five years there without getting one naira from the government. So he spent five years in police academy, supposed to be paid stipends, was not paid for five years, and now he's in the police force. Although they are paying him now, he has an arrears for five years. Do you understand what I'm saying? How do you expect such a person to survive? If he did not have family members and friends that could sustain him within that five years, what did you want him to do? Mm. That's one side of it. We have junior police officers earning less than two, less than $150 a month. A month. We have police officers earning less than even $100 a month. Or, yeah, about a hundred. Do, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So how do they so, get by then? Yeah, that's the issue. Those are the issues. Those are the issues we are raising that nobody that is supposed to enforce law and order should earn money like that. That's another thing that I'm saying that this NSAS protest is sparking a lot of other conversations because the government can come and say, yes, the Nigerian government is facing a recession, there is no money, but yet we have government officials that are overpaid. The Nigerian legislature is one of the highest paid legislatures in the world. The Nigerian executive have benefits of that I'm sure the American president cannot even have. Do you understand what I'm saying? So these issues are issues that we need, we, we are dragging attention that we understand that the police officers are human beings too, and they need to be well compensated to carry out their jobs. Because when you talk to police officers personally and they're like, see, we don't like what is going on, but we have no choice. We have to obey orders or we lose our jobs. 
jobs are not even paying them well. They, they, they have to hold on to it because that's their means of survival. So that's why we're advocating that these people are Nigerians too. These people are, they are putting themselves in danger. They deserve to earn a better living. The narrative of our protests being violent can never fly because one of our demands is better compensation. During our protests, we fed policemen. We had budgets to feed policemen. We gave them food, we gave them drinks, we gave them water. You understand what I'm saying? So the, the, the agitation is not, is right now, is moving beyond SARS and is moving to, a, a, we are moving, we are agitating for a more conducive Nigeria where everybody can live comfortably and happily. It's not, we, we, are, we are going, be, Nigeria is 60 years, Nigeria turned 60 this year. We should go beyond some primitive, primitive thing. We need, the, what, what, what I understand from this protest basically is Nigerians are tired of the culture of non-accountability and no transparency. We want to hold people accountable. We want them to know that, yes, this is your job and you need to do your job. Ali Bob, thank you for, for sharing this. Do you think that is something Nigeria can do on its own? Does Nigeria need support? And what does that support look like in order to achieve what you're talking about? I think it's a Nigerian problem that should be solved by Nigerians. I feel like if the international community wants to help, we can point out the people in charge of these things. They can sanction them individually. We were not calling for sanctions on our country because we are the ones that will suffer it eventually. The ruling class will still enjoy if Nigeria is sanctioned, the people in power will still live their life. So we're not calling for international help on sanctions. What we are saying is the what if the international community really wants to help us, we should, they should we are calling on sanctions on particular government officials. Yes, we want sanctions on individuals, particular individuals in government responsible for this irresponsible action to face sanctions. Let them let them know where to do business out of Nigeria. Let international communities confiscate their property. Yes, that's what we want. We do not want anything that affects the country and general public. But we want targeted sanctions at these people. We don't want them to rewrite history, because as it's, if you look at the headlines coming out of Nigerian government and government officials, it's an intentional plot at rewriting history, trying to sugarcoat it, say it's a clash, clash between this. There is no clash. There is serious onslaught on peaceful protesters by the Nigerian government. That is what is happening. So we want the international com- community to say the facts as it is and targeted sanctions. Looking from where you are now, having had this very difficult past two days with obviously the use of violence by by the government against the peaceful protesters, where do you think that the protests and the movement for more accountability from the government, especially as it relates to policing, where do you think it goes from here in the next couple of weeks? If you asked me this question three days ago, I'd have said, oh yeah, I was one of the advocates of it's time to dialogue. Even as much as people said, oh no, there's no need to dialogue, our demand clear. Yeah, government should meet our demands. I was of the opinion that dialogue is an option. But right now, how do you expect Nigerians, Nigerian youths to sit down and dialogue with you when the army stayed and was shooting at people for an hour plus? Quite frankly, it is inhumane. We're human beings. I cannot sit down to dialogue with you after doing that to me. That's personal. This is personal for me. So at this point, 
I feel my what I think moving on is the only redemption for now is the government should come correct. The government should come clean. If you meet our five demands, then you can call us to the table to dialogue. I, I can't speak for everybody because people are aggrieved differently. So this question is a question that I can only answer personally. Thank you so much for joining us. I know it's like a, a difficult time. There is so much going on. It's like you're saying, things are changing from day to day, but we're very grateful to to have you talk and especially discuss a little bit what the international community can do to help, as you say, with using more targeted options. Thank you so much for, for sharing your time today and your words. I know you're very busy, as you said, with things going on at your office. So thank you so much, Alibaba. It's nice to hear from you. Stay safe and um, sending you guys well wishes in the coming days. All right. Take care, brother. All right. See you. That was a conversation with Ali Bob, who is in Nigeria. He's in Abuja, if I'm pronouncing that. And so he's on the ground. He's seeing this happen live. He's interacting with police. He's interacting with hoodlums. He's he's interacting with homeless people and people who are, are joining them to protest. Yeah, this is serious. This is happening right now. And a lot of people from Nigeria are saying, this is the most important moment in Nigerian history. And I think this stems from what Ali Bob said, that this is bigger than police brutality. This is about corruption and, and government. This is about government corruption and, and power and inequality. These protests that are happening are led by teens, people in their 20s, and they're organized. Like Ali Bob, he was able to name those five demands they're organized. They're engaging with Nigerians who are living internationally and they're, they're raising funds. They're creating petitions. So it's, it's great to see that the youth in Nigeria are leading this and to see how organized they are. They realize what's at stake here. This is, again, not just about police brutality, but this is about them being able to trust their government. Tristan, what were your what are your thoughts from that conversation with with Alibab? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, again, being able to speak to someone like that on the ground is a huge opportunity. So I'm very glad he was able to share his voice with us and, and all of you listening at home. I think you really hit the nail on the head. Eh? The most the biggest takeaway was that the SARS situation is what spurred the movement, but it's now it's a fight against systemic oppression. And Nigeria is a very unique country. It is the most densely, most populated country in Africa, and also one that was endowed with the most natural, some of the most natural resources, huge amounts of oil that were found there. And I think that one of the big frustrations is that, I wish I had a direct quote right now, but I don't, but the amount of money that Nigeria has brought in from oil revenue that has been squandered through mismanagement and government corruption and handouts, and it, it is shocking, especially when put against the level of, of poverty that is faced by such a high percentage of, of people in Nigeria. I think that what I want to emphasize first and foremost is just solidarity. These people are putting their lives on the line for, for freedom and for fair representation, democracy, and also just safety. The, these are, this is as real as it gets when it comes to both failed states, but also the transition. And you really hope that this kind of movement can lead to 
to positive good. And I think that was the, as you mentioned, what was so nice about hearing these demands, the fact that they are reasonable, they are well communicated, they're out there. But it's very scary. And I think to give a little bit more, you know, contemporary context, the police out in in Nigeria, unfortunately, they seem to be doubling down. We mentioned earlier in the podcast that the government is not necessarily being fully transparent in terms of what has been going on as it relates to the brutality. So interesting, difficult to fully understand from our, our positions of, of relative privilege being in Canada here. Yeah. What are your what do you hope to see? What do you what's at top of mind? What's top of mind is if the Nigerian government is not going to respond to the demands of its citizens and treat them with dignity. And I said this in the last podcast when we talked to to Brooke regarding what's happening in Mi'kma'ki with the indigenous people. There's got to be international bodies who can intervene and hold governments accountable when they are mistreating their people. And so I guess if there's anything that I can leave, it's just there is a collective action campaign, collectiveaction.ca. There's a campaign for ending police brutality in Nigeria, for ending SARS. It's targeted at UN Security General, UN staffers, and the International Criminal Court. And so that's something you can do. Wherever you are, that's something you can do. You can go online, you can use this tool, and you can urge the UN and the International Criminal Court to to take action in Nigeria and to hold the government officials and the people who are causing harm against their people, hold them accountable. That's what's top of mind for me. Yeah. And you really say it right there that that's exactly what Ali Bob said. Also, in some cases, when countries are perpetrating human rights abuses, you see this a lot in the case of Iran, they get slapped with these huge sanctions. But ultimately, oftentimes when sanctions are put into a country as a whole, you know, the impact can be felt hardest by those in poverty. As you start to see just a reduction in the standard of living, sometimes the cutting out of certain aspects of food aid. And so what Ali Bob, you know, really emphasized with that, there are individuals within the government, within the police force that are powerful and, but that are culpable for what is going on and they need to, to be brought to account. And this is something that, for example, the Canadian government can do as well. There's the Magnitsky sanctions, which allow you to specifically, you know, target individuals, their assets, their ability to move around and make sure these, these people who are corrupt in the government, in the police, who are making off with millions, whilst millions of Nigerians themselves are on the streets protesting. We've got to make sure that life is hard for them and that they realize that they need to use that power and, and use it responsibly. So that's very important. And I think that there are two aspects of the conversation that I think are really worth just a little bit more discussion. I think number one was Ali Bob talking about the fact that he recognizes, and, and I think he, of course, shares the mindset of a lot of other people on the street. They recognize the role of police in a ordinary and, and peaceful society. They don't want the police to in this case, be completely abolished and taken away. They recognize that they play a role, but they also recognize that the police are are also a symptom of the bigger problem. They are underpaid. They are facing issues. And that's what, in some cases, forces them to abuse their power and go out and look for bribes. It's this general attitude of corruption. And so to fix the issues that are happening at the police level, they need to fix the issues at the top level. I thought that was really, really impactful. Mm-hmm. And I think it really showed humility that yeah. these people protesting, they're out there for their country. They're not out there for themselves. They want to fix yeah. the whole problem. 
Yeah, no, very true. And I think that the second thing that I found really interesting, and I think it's 2020 has been a year of many different um, themes. Not a lot of them are necessarily positive. Obviously, this COVID pandemic that we're all facing, of course, wear a mask indoors. It's the cool thing to do wherever you can. But obviously, the theme of police brutality has been um, around systemic racism in Canada and the US, around the world. But I think that sometimes in our ecosystem here in Canada, and, and we're so overloaded sometimes with international news from the US that we forget that a lot of the issues that, that we face as society, they exist all around the world and often in countries that are, I don't necessarily want to use the word less developed, but in some ways less developed than Canada, they face rather in countries that are less economically uh, advantaged than, than Canada, when they face some of the same issues that we face, they face much more dire consequences. And I was remiss to, in that conversation with Ali Bob, listening to him talk about the fact that there seems to be people who are paid and operationalized by the police to masquerade as quote unquote, unpeaceful uh, you know, protesters. This tactic that was being used in Nigeria to try and paint these peaceful demonstrations with a broad brush of violent protesting and looting. This is a similar thing that has happened in Hong Kong where police would pay for people to go out there and make a huge mess and loot and, and, and just do violence and damage and then blame it on the protesters to try and shift the public perception of those protests. And it's the same thing that we see in the United States. Donald Trump going out there, God forbid we forget the fact that the U.S. president said at one point during these George Floyd protests, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. A direct, a direct, a direct line to the, the segregation movement. And so these issues that are being faced in Nigeria, or rather in the US and in Hong Kong, all around the world, the police brutality and, and, and what goes on, it is a symptom of what goes on around the world. I thought it was important to connect that and share that you know, with the audience. So we're both Africans. You were born in South Africa. I was born in Ghana. And we've both spent quite a bit of time in Africa. I'm curious to know what your experience was in Africa. I know you've been there several different times throughout your, your life. Can you share, have you had any experiences with police or with authority figures that maybe rubbed you the wrong way? I think that it's just, it's such a, it's such a different system of law when the most powerful organization of the land is completely unreliable and corrupt and has no real sort of basis of like well-recognized rules. So in Kenya, for example, which is I think where I've seen the most police corruption and they have yeah, just a terrible track record, there is no such thing as a fine book. There is no receipt for when you are charged with a some kind of a violation of the law. There's a huge amount of ambiguity. And what ends up happening is that the majority of the time you see the police in Kenya, this is where I, I, I grew up and spent a bunch of my time outside of South Africa, they'll just set up roadblocks. And basically they'll stop every car and they will just have this top list of, of petty offenses that they like to charge people with. And this is a basic rundown. You roll down your window, they come and they, they ask you for all the things. They'll ask you for the triangle, if you have a flare gun, if you have two fire extinguishers, they might as well ask you if you have like a, a life vest or something in case your vehicle falls in water. Whatever it is, they'll come up with something and then they'll stop and they'll say, ah, without this, you're breaking the law. And they'll let you ponder on it for a second. And then they'll give you this, this paradox because they don't want to outright say, give me money, yeah. but, but they want to work you into it. So they'll say, this is a very big problem. And uh, this is one of your brake lights isn't working or something like that. Yeah, it's a yeah. very big problem. And either I can take you to the station and we'll see how things go, or maybe we can, you know, figure something out here. 
and and that's where the process starts and and the yeah. reality the difficulty is that it's just so it's so convenient the sort of like petty level of police corruption where you know that they're expecting a bribe and they'll take up your time until you pay one and sometimes they're and sometimes you're wrong and sometimes it's the absolute other case and you're just straight up being harassed for money and but it's this thing that you fall into because then one day you don't have your spare tire then you pay that bribe and it was super easy and so you become like the symptom of of the problem as a whole and i think that was one of the things that just makes it so hard to turn it over is that it's the corruption within police and the majority of African countries that I've been to is just, it's systemic and it, it's at every single level. What, what was some of your memories from Ghana as it related to police in, in Africa? Very similar experience. I went back in 2016 with my older brother and they could tell that we were foreigners. Even though we're Ghanaians and we're born in Ghana, they could tell that oh, these are people from abroad. So yeah, just the way they would interact with whether it was the driver or the people in our car was very, what you said, like they're harassing you because they want something out of you when you haven't done anything wrong. So yeah, this is something that is, it's in Ghana, it's in Kenya, it's in South Africa, it's in other African countries as well. And again, at some point, if these countries are not going to make the environment safe for their people, if they're going to exploit their people, if they're going to have different agencies and departments and services that don't provide adequate service to their their people like to me there's got to be some sort of international body that is able to support them maybe it's not fine them or sanction them but it's how do you build capacity in countries that are falling behind yeah and without exploitation and unfortunately, you know, that can be one of the realities is that, of course, a lot of other of African countries were just stuck with inefficient governments that were or state apparatus that were created for exploitation at the end of colonialism. And then the oppressors just left this mess and just said, hey, good luck with it. Here's this thing, democracy, work on it. And hope it uh, works. Well, yeah, we'll hope it works. And then, and then, of course, the international community that did come in at some points gave very exploitative loans. It's a very difficult system and it, it requires more work. And the reality is that when that work isn't put in at the international level, at the local level, governments and, and, and all that, it leads to conflict, it leads to crisis, it leads to unpredictability. And, and that's what we're seeing now in Nigeria with the NSARS movement. So very interesting episode, very fascinating interview with Ali Bob. I think we'd be remiss not to say a huge thank you for the support. In our first week, we got over a thousand downloads. So yeah, cheers to everyone for, for tuning in, for sharing, for supporting us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, if you have friends who don't know what's happening in Nigeria, please share this with them. Take action however you can and educate yourself on what's happening in the world today. Ladies and gentlemen, all you amazing listeners, give us a rating on Spotify, especially Apple Podcasts. It really helps. It takes two seconds. We're already starting to hit some of the Canadian charts and we want to keep that going. And on our end, what we're going to try to do is provide consistent content, keep you guys engaged and informed. And on the flip side, if you can all just keep supporting us, it really goes a long way. And if you have any questions, any suggestions, if you have any stories that you think can lead to action, feel free to reach out to us, New Action Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, We'll be there to answer your questions. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week.